of May, there's going to be thousands, hundreds of thousands of seniors graduating from high school, college, maybe kindergartners graduating from kindergarten. My sister is graduating from high school this year. And even though it's not been too long ago, I remember when I graduated from high school and I finally thought, I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm free to eat whatever I want, to go wherever I want, to buy whatever I want. I'm finally free. You know what I realized in a few short months? I'm really not as free as I thought I was going to be. You see, you can celebrate your graduation. You know, it's such an exciting time. You receive your diploma. You celebrate with friends and family. You have an open house. And at that point, you've got so much potential. You can be whatever you want. You can go wherever you want. And you just have that thought going through your head that you're free. But the truth is, after high school, none of us are as free as we might want to think. Adult life sets in. And even in college, maybe you can go and you can pretend like you're free and enjoy that time. But eventually it all catches up for you. You have student loans to pay off. You have to get a job. For most of us, becoming an adult didn't feel like freedom. You can go wherever you want, but it costs money especially with gas prices being so high right now. You'd have to pay for gas, hotels, food, etc. And if you go somewhere, you have to use vacation days from work. You can stay up as late as you want, but honestly, by the time I get to the end of the day, I'm usually about ready to fall asleep. You think I can watch whatever I want on TV. By the time I get through everything, I turn something on and I just end up falling asleep. You can eat whatever you want, but if you eat too much, you start getting sick, you start getting fat, and then you have to diet, exercise, and watch everything just to keep the weight that you have that's not even really losing any weight. Getting older, becoming an adult, isn't as free as we want to think that it is. And honestly, I think it comes from this idea, that we don't really understand what freedom is. We think that freedom is, I don't have any rules, I don't have any controlling me, any boundaries, and that's not really what freedom actually is. And this morning, I want you to understand the truth that apart from the Bible, apart from the gospel, apart from God's word, you're not actually free. Actually, what the Bible tells you this morning is that if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you are actually in bondage, you're enslaved, you're in chains, you are captured by your sin. We think freedom is the absence of rules, restraints, and restrictions, but yet we get freedom wrong. People think I can drink as much as I want, and it leads them to become a drunk, and they're enslaved to alcohol. People think they can watch as much pornography as they want. You know what? They become a porn addict, and they become enslaved to pornography, and that just decimates their lives. People think they can use whatever kind of language they want. You can't control how I talk, the things I say. But you know what happens over time? They use those words over and over and over again. And they can't say three or four words without cursing or taking the Lord's name in vain. They're in bondage to their words. And I could go on and on this morning from drug use to sex to gambling. All these different ways that we try to tell ourselves that we're free. And it only leads us to more bondage. You always want more. You can never get enough. You will never be happy. And you will bring yourself to the end of yourself until you're like the prodigal son 
eating from pig scraps, the food that's given to pigs, and you finally come to the end of yourself and you think, how did I get here? It's because you were searching for freedom and you were only giving yourself more slavery. And so in order for us to understand what true freedom is this morning, I think Paul gives us a sermon in Acts 13. He's speaking to the people in the town of Antioch, Poseidon. They're a mix of Jews and Gentiles, but they all knew the Jewish law. And he's trying to explain to them what true freedom is. Because you see, no matter where you come from, no matter how you grew up, whether you were a Jew, a Gentile, even today, whether you grew up in a Christian home, an unsaved home, whether you heard the Bible every day from when you were a kid, or whether this is all just new information to you, all of us were born in captivity. We were born enslaved to sin. None of us did what was good. None of us sought after God. All of us were slaves to sin. And it's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can actually be free. The Jews thought they were free, but they were bound to the law. The law couldn't save them from their sin. The Ten Commandments, the law of Moses, it only showed them their sin, that they're liars, thieves, that they steal, that they take the Lord's name in vain. It only exposed their sin. And the Gentiles didn't have the law, but they were still stuck in sin as well. They just had their conscience, which can become corrupted. And so ask yourself the question this morning, well, what is real freedom? If freedom isn't just I can do whatever I want, then what actually is freedom? And I don't think freedom this morning is the absence of rules, boundaries, or restraints. But freedom is the absence of sin. Freedom is getting rid of the bondage of sin, and that only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what I want us to see this morning, our sermon idea, what I want this whole passage to show us is this. It's that the gospel of Christ frees us from the bondage of sin. And to do that, I've got four different points. I don't normally alliterate my points, but it just worked today. There are four different P words, and they show us different aspects of the freedom that we have in Christ. First of all, notice with me the promise of freedom. The promise of freedom. And we start seeing that in verse 13. Now we're picking back up in Acts where we left off in verse 12. Remember, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned in their first missionary journey. They're going to spread the gospel to Gentiles, but also to Jewish people as well in this region, Galatia, which we're going to enter into today. When we last left them in two sermons or two weeks ago, they were on the island of Cyprus. They were going through and preaching to the different cities there. Well, now they're coming back up. And if you have that map from a couple weeks ago, that's fine. If you don't, that's okay. They're coming back up to the mainland and they're starting to preach to cities in the region of Galatia. So in verse 13, it tells us where they're going. It says, Now Paul and his companions set from Paphos and came to Persia and Pamphylia. That was a region south of Galatia. And notice what it says, And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now don't miss that detail. We're not going to talk about it a ton today. Remember, Paul and Barnabas took with them someone named John Mark. He actually ends up becoming the author of the Gospel of Mark. His mother was Mary. That was the house that they met in, I think, for the Last Supper. But it was also just the upper room that they met in in Acts 12 when Peter is freed from prison. So she was a very wealthy woman to have such a large home. And Mark went with Paul and Barnabas to see to their physical needs. But it says here that he left and went back to Jerusalem. 
You might ask yourself, why did he leave? And the answer is, we have no idea. We really don't know. It doesn't tell us anything. We can guess. I think it might have been due to the physical conditions. To get to the cities they were going to, they actually had to go up some mountains, and it was pretty dangerous and just wearing traveling that they were doing once they get into this Pamphylia region. In fact, when Paul writes Galatians in Galatians 4, he talks about how he was very ill when he first came to them. I think this journey really took a toll on them as they were going into this region. So it could have been because of that. Some think he was jealous of Paul, that Paul was getting all of this notoriety, that he's starting to be the one that everybody focuses on. And John Mark might have gotten jealous. Maybe he got homesick. Maybe he wanted to go back to Jerusalem. Maybe he was doubting the faith. Maybe he was fearful after the last journey. You remember, they ran them out of the city, and so he could have been afraid. We honestly don't know, and that's okay. We're going to come back to it in Acts 15, because Paul and Barnabas are going to have what's called a sharp disagreement about John Mark. Barnabas wants to bring him back into the team. Paul doesn't want to have him as part of the team anymore, and so we'll talk more about that in a few weeks. I just want us to notice here that this is actually the point where John Mark leaves. And so it's just Paul and Barnabas at this point. Now look at verse 14. It says, but they went on from Persia and came to Antioch Poseidon. Now this isn't the same Antioch they were at. This is a different town named Antioch in this region that's kind of in South Galatia. It says, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So remember the synagogue is the Jewish I don't, church is not the right word, but Jewish gathering point. It would be like a church. And this is where they would meet for worship. And so Paul and Barnabas go there. And actually, if you read verse 15, it says, after reading from the law and prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, they were like the officials in charge of that gathering. They sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any words of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, if you can imagine this for just a moment, As I read this passage, I don't think they realize that Paul was a Christian. This is a Jewish church service or assembly, and Paul was a pretty prominent Pharisee, right? You read Acts, you read Philippians, you realize that Paul was a very prominent Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel. And so they think Paul is a Jewish traveling speaker and that he's going to teach them Judaism. Now imagine if we had a special speaker come to our church, and I invited them to come up and give us a sermon— And they started preaching from the Koran or from the Book of Mormon or something, just something completely different. You all would be looking at me like, Lance, where did you get this guy from? You know, I mean, it would just be completely opposite of what we are used to. And yet Paul takes this opportunity and he says, "Okay," And he starts preaching the gospel to them. And I think very quickly the officials of the synagogue start looking at each other and thinking this is not the same Paul that we thought was going to be. Coming. So Paul takes this opportunity and it says in verse 16, he stood up motioning with his hands. He's kind of gathering everybody in and he starts giving this sermon. And it's a very interesting sermon. It's a long sermon and it details Israel's history. This is pretty common for the apostles to do. We saw Peter do this in Acts 2. We've seen Stephen do this in Acts 7. He starts telling the history of Israel. It actually, if you read the sermon next to Acts 2, when Peter gives a sermon at Pentecost, there are a lot of similarities to it. There really are. And I think it shows us something, that the apostles understood the Bible the same way. 
We're going to see Paul use the Old Testament. We're going to see him explain the gospel in a very similar way to Peter and Stephen. So it's interesting to just see how similar they were. But Paul has some things that makes this sermon unique. He's going to talk about justification, the freedom that we have. That's where I'm getting this freedom idea, because that's going to be a huge point that Paul is going to make later in the sermon. But he starts out this sermon, and he talks about their history. So look at verse the second part of verse 16. It says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Now what he's trying to do, it's really clever. He's trying to identify with them. He's like, hey, you're from Israel. I'm from Israel. We all grew up this way. So listen to what I have to say. And he says, the God of this people, so we all serve the same God of Israel, our fathers and made, or the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made this people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Now we know that Israel really came from Abraham, but he starts by talking about Egypt. Remember, the Jews, the Israelites, were slaves in the land of Egypt, and then Moses led them out of slavery. It says with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Now, a lot of the biblical writers will go back to Exodus, will go back to their stay in Egypt. Why? Because for the Jewish people, that really signified God's salvation. The Passover meal always pointed back to Egypt, their stay in Egypt, and the slavery that they were under. The notice that next verse, it says, And for 40 years he put up with them. I love how he says that. Um, In the King James, it says he suffered their manners. It's a really interesting phrase. If you can imagine, you know, like if I told you that I put up with someone or put up with a family member, you'd probably think I didn't like them very much. Well, God put up with Israel. And why does Paul say it that way? Because during those 40 years, Israel complained. They doubted God. They sinned against God even. And he said, you know what? This generation from 20 years on, they're all going to die out. They're not going to enter into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. And so God did really put up with their ways during that time. Look at verse 19. And after destroying seven nations, so that happens in Joshua, God destroyed the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Pezzarites, Hivites, and the Hittites. So any of the Ite nations They were gone. You know, they were all part of that land of Canaan. God wiped them out in the book of Joshua, and he gave them the promised land. So God led them from Egypt. He even put up with them when they were doubting God, and he gave them this promised land. And it says all this took about 450 years until Samuel. So he goes from Moses to Joshua, now to Samuel. And Samuel was a prophet, and Israel asked for a king during Samuel's time as a prophet. And God gave them Saul, who actually didn't start out as a bad person necessarily, but his heart quickly drew away from the Lord. And this happened for 40 years. And then finally, in verse 22, it says, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. So this is important. Jesus is God, yes, but he's descended from David as a man as well. He says, He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. This is why we call David a man after God's own heart. 
It's actually a combination of Psalm 89, 20 and 1 Samuel 13, 4, where Paul's getting this phrase. But he's showing how David was loved by God, how he followed God, even though he sinned in his life. Yes. And how in verse 23, it says of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So Paul's giving us this Old Testament background, this history to point us towards Christ to point us towards the coming of Christ. In 2 Samuel 7, David is promised that there's going to be one who would come and who would sit on his throne forever. Not just a human king, but it's actually Jesus who sits on the throne of David. Then verse 24, he kind of finishes this small little history lesson. It says, Before his coming, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people, And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, he who is coming after me, the one whose sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So this points us all the way to John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Christ, but who was not Christ. And that whole bit about talking about his sandals, maybe you've wondered about that. Why does John say, I'm not worthy to take off Jesus' shoes? Well, if you were a servant of someone... You had to perform all these different menial tasks like preparing the meal, doing all these different things for them, but you wouldn't take off their sandals. Why? Because even taking off someone's sandals was below the requirement of a servant. It was something that even the servants or slaves wouldn't do for the master. And so John's saying, I'm not even worthy to do that when it comes to Jesus. He's showing how great Jesus is and how low John is in comparison. And so all of this shows us a history lesson. Maybe you liked history in school. Maybe you were glad to be done with history. But it shows us a history lesson on the importance of Christ. And it shows us what? Different examples of God's providence. How God saved Israel in Egypt. How he gave them the promised land. How he protected David and even blessed David. It's all these different examples of God's providence. It reminds me of when I go out to eat. I really like appetizers, whether it's chips at a Mexican restaurant, whether it's uh, some kind of breadsticks at a pizza or an Italian restaurant or something like that. Sometimes you can get so full on appetizers, but they're really not the main course. They're just kind of pointing us towards the main course. So when I was a kid, my parents would have to cut me off because they say, you're going to be too full for the actual meal. That's really what Paul is doing here. He's showing us different examples of how God has saved Israel, but he's pointing us towards the ultimate example, which is Jesus. He's showing us this promise of freedom that's really been in place since Genesis 3. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? They sinned against God and God made a promise to Satan, actually, to the serpent. And he said, there's going to come the seed of the woman who is going to crush your head. He's going to be the seed of the woman. He's going to give us victory over death. So do you understand this promise of freedom, how it doesn't just happen in the Gospels, but how it actually takes place throughout all Scripture? We talked about this in Sunday school. The Gospel is seen throughout the entire Old Testament. And yet, what did Israel actually do? And I think this is important for us to understand They saw all those Old Testament stories about how God saved them, even the law that God gave. 
And they valued it more than the actual gospel of Jesus Christ, which came. The law of Moses, the Passover, which pointed to the Exodus. Israel spent so much time worrying about those things that they couldn't even see Jesus when he actually came. How those things pointed us towards Christ, who is ultimately going to come and free them. They were so focused about how they were freed from slavery with Moses that they couldn't see how Christ was coming to free them from their sins. So Paul is pointing us towards this promise in the Old Testament of Christ. Now look at verse 26. We're going to see the price of freedom. The price of freedom. Look at verse 26 with me. Brothers and sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. So the gospel, salvation, came first to the Jewish people. It's not a race issue. It's that they were the people of God. The gospel came to them first, but it's going to go out to the Gentiles as well. Look at verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, Fulfill them by condemning them. So what is he saying there? The people who were in Jerusalem, the high priests, the Pharisees, they didn't recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't realize that he was the Savior. They thought he was another person. Maybe they thought he was a good teacher. Maybe they thought he was just some kind of cult leader or something. But they didn't see him as the Messiah. I can remember one time, maybe you've seen someone that you thought was famous in a crowd or something like that. Um, if you've ever been to the Creation Museum or know anything about Answers in Genesis, you've probably heard of Ken Ham. I remember when I was a kid, we went to the Ark. I was a little bit older than a kid, I guess. I was in like late high school. And I remember I saw a guy that looked like Ken Ham. And I went to my parents and I said, that's Ken Ham. I, I can see him, you know. And they're like, that's not Ken Ham. And they didn't believe me. And so he went on and he was kind of walking through the ark and I get on Facebook later and he's doing a live video from the ark and I can see myself in the video. And I go and show that to my parents. I'm like, that was Ken Ham and you didn't believe me. And they, they said, oh, that's fake. That's probably Photoshopped or something, you know. And so they still don't believe me about it. The Jewish people didn't recognize that this was the Messiah. They just saw Christ as another person. And it really does show us that while Christ was 100% God, he was a real person. He lived a human life. He didn't like fly around like Superman or something. He didn't have this glow about him, but he looked like any of us would look. And so these people didn't recognize him. In fact, they killed him and it said they fulfilled these prophecies, so it talks about these utterances by the prophets. You could say they're prophecies about Christ. They fulfilled them by killing Christ. What Paul's saying is actually if they would have read the Old Testament, they would have saw that this was Jesus. But for whatever reason, they weren't paying attention to it. They couldn't see that this was the Jesus clearly predicted in the Old Testament. Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. So the Jews were so focused on killing Christ that they had him put to death by Pilate on false charges as well. Jesus was not guilty. In verse 29, 
when they had carried all this out, that was written. Again, it shows us that this was prophesied, even in the Old Testament. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So what these leaders don't realize is that they're actually fulfilling prophecy, that they're actually carrying out what has been written. When I was reading this, I thought about all those times I used to work for the YMCA. I also used to be a teacher for a year. And all those times where maybe I would have a kid that was struggling with being argumentative or talking out of turn or something. So I'd have to take him to the hallway and I'd say, hey, you just got a really bad attitude. You're being really argumentative. And you know what they say? No, I'm not. And then they would start arguing with me about it and they would get really intense. And I would just stop and say, you're actually proving my point. That you as being argumentative are having an argument with me about it. And in the same way, the Pharisees didn't believe that this was Jesus, but in the very acts that they did to try to stop him, they fulfilled what Scripture said about Jesus. But their plans wouldn't be carried out. They did everything they could to try to stop the plan of God. But look at verse 30. It says, but God raised him from the dead. Was Jesus God? Yes. Did God raise Jesus from the dead? Yes, it was the power of God that raised him from the dead. And then in verse 31, And after many days he appeared to those who had come up with him to Galilee and Jerusalem and are now witnesses to the people. So after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to different people. It was actually select people, but he did appear, Paul says, even over 500 people. There's witnesses of the risen Christ. In fact, he didn't appear to Thomas, and Thomas got upset and said, well, I don't think he's really risen. And Jesus ends up appearing to him as well and had Thomas touch his side and his hands to show that he was truly alive. And why did Jesus do that? Well, it's so that they could be witnesses. And that actually brings us to where we started in Acts, where after Christ was risen, he commands them to go out and spread the gospel to all nations. The price of freedom was paid by Christ. He fulfilled scripture. He was put unjustly on a cross. It says when they start talking about the crucifixion in verse 29, it says, And when they'd carried out all that was written, they took him down from the tree. It references how Christ was hung on a tree. And Acts likes to bring this up, that Jesus was hung on a tree. And in Deuteronomy, it says, Cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. A tree. Our freedom that we have in Christ, and this is what Paul is trying to show us, actually came at the cost of Christ's life. He was unjustly crushed by man. He didn't stay that way, yes, but he did pay the price for our freedom. Many people say about our military, and I think it's certainly true, that the freedom that we have as a nation is not free but it's paid for by the brave lives of men and women who serve our country, who die for our country and our freedom. We may not recognize that because we're not in the military, but we see the price that they pay just so that we can have free lives as Americans, right? In the same way, we can think about the freedom that we have in Christ came at the cost of Christ's life. He didn't have to die on the cross for our sins, but he did so that we could be free in him. But freedom doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want. And I hope we can see that as we go throughout this sermon. In fact, Paul asks us about this in Romans 6. After we're saved, he says, 
Should we continue just on sinning after we're saved so that grace may abound? And he says, no, by no means. You shouldn't just keep on sinning. And why is that? It's because our sin is actually what binds us. Imagine if you met someone who had been in prison for 20 years for whatever crime, and they were carrying out a life sentence. And you just walked in, you took off their cuffs, you opened the door, and you said, you can walk out. That person would probably walk out, right? Imagine if they came back a week later, and they just go and they sit on their bunk in their jail cell. They've not got any chains on them. They say, well, I'm free, you know, I'm free to do whatever I want, and that means I can come back to this jail cell. I mean, how crazy would you think that person was? You might say, yeah, you're free, but you're also crazy. Like, why would you go back to prison if you've just been freed? In the same way, we're free in Christ. That freedom doesn't mean we go back to our sin. The freedom actually means that we're saved from our sin to live like Christ would want us to live. So you recognize the price that Jesus paid for your sin. That for you to be free in Christ, it means that Christ suffered and died on the cross for you. Then do you flee from your sin and run to Christ? Because it's actually your sin that he's freed you from. Notice in verse 32, we're going to see the purpose of freedom. The purpose of freedom. It says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So Paul is saying this is the message. That what's been predicted in the Old Testament. This promise of freedom. Is now coming in to play in Christ. And this is where he's going to start quoting some different Old Testament passages. First he's going to quote Psalm 2. Psalm 2. In fact turn to Psalm 2 just briefly with me. I think it's important that we see this. We studied this on a Wednesday night. I don't know how long ago. It's probably been close to over a year Psalm 2 predicts a future king in Christ who is going to rule over the nations, this anointed Messiah. The first two verses of Psalm 2 show all these nations plotting against God. They're scheming together against God and his Messiah. And look at verse 4. It says, he who sits in the heavens and what? Laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. These enemy nations are plotting against God. They're saying, how can we undo the plan of God? And God just laughs at them because they have no power over him. I've been over at my fiance's house some, and sometimes her nephew will come over. He's like 20 to 22 months. And sometimes her nephew will come over and he'll try to like wrestle me or something. And it's really, really funny because he's definitely not as strong as I am obviously, you know, but he gets really into it or he starts trying to like, you know, pin me down or something like that. He's kind of a rascal for being, in fact, I think he's entering his terrible twos maybe just a little bit early. But what do you do? You laugh at him. Why? Because you don't really take seriously what he's able to do. And in the same way, that's what God thinks of all of these enemy nations. And then in verse seven, we see God talking to Christ and saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now what does that word begotten mean? It means that Christ is sent into the world. It's, it's Christ being brought into the world to save sinners. 
This is part of the plan of God, that Jesus is the king. He's God's begotten son. It can also mean unique, one of a kind. So it shows how Jesus is God's son, the king. But then also look at verse 34. And as for that fact, he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He is spoken in this way. He quotes once again. He says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. This comes from Isaiah 55. It connects Christ to David, even in being raised from the dead. And then he's going to quote Psalm 16. It says in verse 35, Therefore, he says in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 16, David is, I think, having a real crisis of his own, but it also he's also pointing us towards Christ and his resurrection. And it's used a lot. It's actually used in Acts as well, along with Psalm 2. It's used in other places in Acts to show us the power of the resurrection of Christ. So what do I think Paul is trying to say with this? He's trying to show us that while Christ died on the cross, his body never experienced decay. It's kind of a morbid analogy. But you can do whatever you want to try to preserve a body, but eventually, over time, that body is going to see decay. And why is that? Because they're dead. Because they're dead and they've not been raised back to life like Christ. They are dead. And that's what Paul's showing us. Look at verse 36. It says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Death is the unavoidable fate for everyone, a physical death. All of us die at some point. There's only been two other people besides Christ that haven't died, Elijah and Enoch, and they were carried into heaven. And that's something you just have to ask God about when you get there, about how all of that took place but Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment what Paul's showing is that this couldn't have been speaking of David because David's body experienced decay he's like you can go look for David's bones and you can see he was not raised from the dead as great as David was he was a man after God's own heart he was loved by God David experienced death But Christ did not experience death. He's the one that God raised from the dead. Friends, the truth is this morning is that each and every one of us will die at some point. I know that's a really cheerful sermon that I'm (laughs) giving you this morning. Hey, guess what? You're all going to die at some point. But the hope that is found in me saying that is this. It's that there was a person who after he died, God raised from the dead in Jesus. And if you know him, if you have a relationship with him, it means that after you die, you don't have to experience the second death, which is an eternity in hell. If you know Christ who God raised from the dead, you can experience a new life in him, free from your sin, free from your bondage. It's a new life in Christ and you can have eternal life with him after you die. The hope of the Christian life is not that you're going to escape a physical death. That's not possible. All of us will die at some point unless the Lord comes back. The hope of the Christian life is that Christ gives you a life after death because he's the one that God raised from the dead. And this is the freedom that Paul is talking about. Look at what he continues to say. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to 
you. He shows us how Christ offers us forgiveness. This freedom that had been promised from Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, John the Baptist. It all points us to this salvation which is now offered to us. What is forgiveness? What does it mean to forgive someone? It means to cancel their guilt, to release them from liability. If you have debt that's forgiven, it means you don't have to pay that debt anymore. It is a release from that guilt. Jay Adams says, forgiveness is a promise that I'll no longer hold a sin against you, and that I won't bring it up to God, others, or you in a way that is to harm you. So when you forgive others in your Christian life, you're making them a promise. I'm not going to remember this sin against you in a way to hurt you. I'm not going to bring this sin up again in a way that's going to hurt you to anyone else, including God, including myself. But what is true about forgiveness for each one of us? Do we ever forget what happens? You know, a lot of people say forgive and forget. Do we ever forget what happens? Sometimes no, and you can try so hard to forget what happens. And you may not think about it all the time, but it can still come up in your mind. You can still remember it. In fact, sometimes you have to remember, maybe they've broken the law. Maybe you can't trust them for some reason. So you have to remember that. You're going to remember what they did. And that's what is so amazing about forgiveness offered in Christ. It's that God says he does not remember our sins against us. But they're as far as the east is from the west. I don't know about you. I could not say that to someone. That I'm going to forget your sins as far as the east is from the west. This is the forgiveness offered in God, in Christ. Look at the next verse. He says, And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So it's in Christ where we experience this what? This freedom. If you're using a King James Bible, it says this justification, justified. And Paul loves this idea of justification. He talks about it in Romans, how we are justified, we're made righteous in God's sight. It has this idea of being in a courtroom and you're guilty. And there's just an overwhelming verdict. If you've ever watched like a courtroom drama or something, has anybody ever watched one of those shows? And they have this just this overwhelming case against someone. And yet God in justification looks on that person and he says, you are righteous. And why is that? Is that because we're good people? No, it's because of the righteousness of God's son. That is the freedom that we have in Christ. We're staring down a death sentence, a sentence what we're never going to get out of. And God in Christ says, you are free. Paul loves this idea of justification, the freedom that we have. And notice what he says, you're freed from what? Don't think that it's the law of Moses, even though I don't think we're under the law. It says you're freed from everything you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Could the law free people from sin? No, it could only expose their sin. Now, the law had some helpful things that helped Israel live like they should, but no one could keep the law perfectly. But it did show them how they had sinned. In Christ, we have a freedom 
that is from our sin. It's everything that the law could not do in salvation. It frees us from this bondage of sin. Then he ends his sermon in the best way. He ends with a quote from Habakkuk. How many times have I done that where I've ended my sermon with a quote from Habakkuk? Never. I've never done that. But look at what he says. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Verse 41, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that even you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. We actually talked about Habakkuk in Sunday school. He's a prophet that sees all the wickedness going on in the world, and he says, isn't God going to do something about this? Maybe you feel like that in our world today. You see all this wickedness and sin, and you think, isn't God going to do something about this? And God says, pay attention. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to bring a judgment against these wicked people. And in the same way, Paul ends his sermon by saying, you guys had better be careful. You had better pay attention because there is a judgment that is going to come. There's a judgment that is going to come for those who do not repent. This is the purpose of freedom. Christ doesn't free us from sin to just leave us as we are. There are no requirements to come to Christ in salvation. He welcomes us with open arms. No matter your background, no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you have committed, Christ welcomes you with open arms to accept his gospel. But he's not going to leave you like you are. He's going to help you grow. He's going to help you change. He's going to help you become more like him. That's the purpose of freedom. Christ frees us so that we don't have to continue sinning, but so that we can have a new life in him. And if you think that sounds really hard to become like Christ, sometimes it can be. But remember what Christ says. He says, take my burden upon you. My yoke is light. He says, come all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It doesn't mean that life is going to be easy but it means that true rest that we desire is found in Christ. We've seen the promise of freedom from the Old Testament, the price of freedom that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the purpose of freedom, which is to help us change and become more like Christ. And finally, notice with us the people of freedom. All this that I've said about freedom is great, but who is able to be free in Christ? Look at verse 42. This is what Keith read for us. So they finished this sermon, and as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Imagine if we had a guest speaker here, and all of you were like hanging on him, like, please come back. We don't want to listen to that other guy again. Please come back. We want you to speak next week. And I mean, they're just begging Paul and Barnabas to come back to the next week. And it says, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. They're saying, please continue sharing these things with us. I mean, that would be, you'd feel pretty good as a speaker, right? If they're telling you to keep going, you know, even after you've spoken for a while. Look at verse 44. <clears throat> Brings us to the next week. So they do come back. The next Sabbath, it says, almost what? The whole city. Now, did I think every single person in the city was there? No, I think this is probably a hyperbole and exaggeration. But there was a lot of people there. Imagine if the whole town of Trafalgar came to one of our services and just started flooding 
and we'd have to get a bit bigger sanctuary, right? But the whole city comes to hear Paul and Barnabas speak. But what happened? Look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. I've got two different thoughts as to why that could be. They could have been jealous about the Christians that they were getting this big following. Or they could be jealous that the Gentiles were accepting the gospel. Some of the Jews thought the gospel was just for them. And they were opposed to the Gentiles accepting the gospel. Now why do I think that? It's because this town is going to be one of the towns that Paul writes the book of Galatians to. And if you've ever read the book of Galatians, there's a lot of issues between Jews and Gentiles. And at one point, Paul's going to say, look, there's no Jews, there's no Gentiles, we're all free in Christ. But for whatever reason, these Jews are getting jealous. It says they're filled with jealousy, and what did they do? They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. I'm so happy we don't have anybody in our church that as I'm preaching, they start saying like the opposite thing that I'm saying that would be very difficult, right? And notice what Paul says. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. And it says, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside to judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning towards the Gentiles. So Paul's saying this was the plan of the gospel to come to the Jews first. He says that in Romans, the gospel of God to the Jew first and then the Gentile. He's saying at this point now, because they've rejected the gospel, he's going to turn his attention to the Gentiles. And he actually says, because you judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. Does that mean they can never be saved again? I don't know if I'd go quite as far to say that, but it's a pretty harrowing judgment on them. Imagine if, you know, I gave a sermon and I called out for people to be saved and nobody came forward or something. And I said, you know what? You guys just aren't worthy of eternal life. You probably wouldn't have me back to speak again, would you? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you guys have rejected the gospel. He says, I'm going to stop preaching it to you. And I'm going to move on to the Gentiles. And you know what we're going to see in Acts? The Gentiles were anxious to hear the word of God. Now, did some of these Jews go back and get saved? I don't know. They could have. But Paul is focusing his ministry now on the Gentiles. But what's interesting about that, he's still going to go to the synagogues. Jewish people are still going to be saved. He's just showing how as part of the plan of God, he's going to the Gentiles. And by the way, this is what Paul was always called to do. He was always called, even from Acts 9, to go to the Gentiles. This is just a moment where we see him shift and focus on that even more. He has another quotation from Isaiah 49, 6 to show his role as a servant. He says, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul brings a pretty harsh judgment on them, but notice what they say. There's a couple different responses in verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they what? Began rejoicing. They began to glorify the Lord, glorifying in the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God planned this out. He called them to eternal life, but I think they still made a decision to repent and believe. How does that work? Ask God when you get to heaven. But this is part of God's plan for their salvation. Verse 49, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the entire region. What's the region? 
It's that region of Galatia, which Galatians is written to. And the word of God is quickly spreading around. And all these people are believing. But they run into more trouble and they end up having to leave. Look at verse 50. And the Jews incited the devout women and high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. This is one of many times that the book of Acts is going to talk about these um, devout women or leading women. They were women of pretty high importance during that time. Now we're going to see later that some of these women end up getting saved in Thessalonica, but they had some pretty high standing in the book of Acts in some of these different cities, and they actually drive Paul and Barnabas out of the city. They don't want them spreading the gospel. Why? Because it's catching on, because so many people are getting saved that they eventually just have to drive them out of the city. And what do they do after they're driven out? Verse 51. But they shook the dust from off their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. That idea of shaking the dust off your feet comes from Matthew 10, when Christ calls those disciples to go and spread the news of the kingdom. And he says, hey, if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet, go to the next town. And so we see Paul and Barnabas continuing to go, and next week we'll look at how they end this first missionary journey. And as we've looked at this missionary journey, we've seen them have success, many people getting saved, the Word of God powerfully transforming people, but we've also seen opposition being brought up against them. And still the Word of God prospers, people are saved, the gospel continues to go out, and that's a great encouragement to us. But as we close our service this morning, as we think about what Paul has said to these people in the sermon, it brings us to some questions about freedom. Like I started the sermon with this morning, freedom isn't doing whatever you want. Freedom isn't the absence of boundaries. But freedom is a relationship with Christ that frees you from sin and helps you become more like him. So as we close, ask yourself some of these questions. First of all, Have you experienced freedom in Christ? Has there been a time in your life where you've recognized the fact that you're a sinner, that you've sinned and you're in bondage to your sin? Maybe you can even feel that, that I just keep sinning and I can't move past it. And have you experienced freedom in Christ where he set you free? You said, I know I'm a sinner, but Christ died for my sins. He was buried. He rose again. And I'm trusting in him to deliver me from my sin debt. That is the power of the gospel that frees you from your sin. There's a lot of talk about revival right now, all the different things that are going on in the world. I'm not going to make any comments on that necessarily. But the best change, the best revival you can have as a person is accepting the gospel of Christ. Knowing that Christ has saved you and he will transform your life from a sinner bound by sin to a believer in Jesus Christ, free in him. So have you experienced freedom in Christ? Secondly, if you're a Christian, you know that you're free. You know that you're free in Christ. Do you use your freedom as an opportunity to sin? Do you say, you know what? I know I'm a Christian. It's not going to change where I stand with God. So I'm just going to go on living how I want, not thinking about the price that Christ paid for my freedom. Just like the illustration I used about the man going back to the jail cell. 
Are you going back to your sin, not recognizing that you're free in Christ? Just because you're saved doesn't mean you'll never sin again. You'll struggle with sin for the rest of your life. But Christ calls you to change, to grow, to be transformed. And are you actively working at that in your Christian life? And then lastly, do you tell others about his forgiveness? The same way that we're set free from sin, there is a world out there that is locked into bondage. There's people out there who cannot escape their sin. They are addicted to whatever sin has ensnared them, whether it's sex, whether it's all of these different objects that have ensnared them. And they can't find freedom. And our world has a lot of answers for them. Our world has a lot of things to try to help them get out of those bondages. And we know this, that the only answer is Christ. The only answer is a gospel, is the gospel. I went to a meeting a few months ago that was for different faith leaders and things like that to try to help us think about how do we help people who are addicted to drugs in our community? How do we help people that have a drug addiction? And they said a lot of things that I thought were really good about dealing with people who are addicted to some kind of substance. But you know what they didn't say? They didn't say that those people needed the gospel. And I left that meeting thinking this. I could offer them all of these different types of therapies, medications, counseling, and that's all great. I'm not saying that that's bad. But if I never give them the gospel, they're not any more free than when they started that stuff. And so let that be a reminder to us. As we think about man's greatest need, ways we can help people, it's not wrong to meet physical needs. But are we meeting people's greatest spiritual need, which is the gospel of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for freedom that we have in Christ. Not freedom to do whatever we want, but freedom to live like your son. But God, that's hard. It's not easy. We struggle. I struggle every day with sin, Lord. And I even myself need your help and your power to change. So would you help us to do that this morning? Would you help us to respond to what you've called us to do? If there's any who aren't saved, may they be drawn to your salvation, to your gospel. If there's any here that need to grow in Christ, who need to take care of their sin to be free, would you even help them to do that today? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.